Okay, we're going back to Philippians 1 tonight. I'm going to pick up a strand that I began last night and maybe circle back to that passage again. We'll see. We, I was going to say if time permits, but let's say if the Lord permits. It's more biblical. Time's got nothing to do with it. The subject generally is going to be the aegis of the cross. I introduced it late in the message. Aegis, we might say the protection or the protective sponsorship of the cross. And this will also be answering a question that has come to us from below the Mason-Dixon line. I'll be anonymous about it, but it is from Mississippi. Hi, Mississippi. Fred and Mary Helen Ferguson, especially Mary Helen. Hi. The question came from there, but you're anonymous. A lot of good things come from Mississippi, including gigantic pecans. And I eat about five pounds of those a year. And I think you can tell. Let's take a few moments of silent preparation. Father, it's a privilege to submit ourselves to the authority and power and grace of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth who guides us into all truth. May our ears be attuned, and therefore may we have an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church at large and to this small assembly tonight. And we thank you for the groups that we have scattered across the country, including Mississippi. And we're grateful for the steadfast fidelity of the members of those assemblies in which there's a great experience of the sweetness of fellowship, the sweetness that comes from the tree placed in the waters of life, the cross. We thank you for this privilege and for the privilege of drinking from waters that were once bitter but made sweet by the tree of Calvary. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Of all the eight volumes of Lewis Berry Chafer's systematic theology, he was the number one protege of C.I. Schofield and carried on a tradition of dispensationalism that began with the Plymouth Brethren and J.N. Darby in the North America and it's one that I kind of branched away from, and as you've noticed, in the past few years. But one thing I remember from Lewis Berry Chafer's Systematic Theology is a statement I alluded to last night. And it's a paraphrase. I'm paraphrasing it by a foggy memory. But it says, the whole world is under the aegis of the cross. Now, the more I think about this, and I, I thought about it then, he even in his volume on soteriology, talked about the immeasurable effects of the cross of Christ that the mind couldn't go too far in thinking about. Well, I've kind of majored on, in the past 10 or 15 years on that very subject, the immeasurable effect of the cross, and applied my mind to it, as you have, and in the total dependence upon the Holy Spirit and his insights. 
So I kind of lament now that unfortunately Lewis Berry Chafer didn't work out the implications of that statement in the direction of God's great intention, as Isaiah 9.5 puts it in the Septuagint translation, calling the Messiah the Angelos or the messenger of the great intention. We know that great intention. It's found in Ephesians 1, 9 through 11. It's called the mystery of God's intent. And that mystery is to summarize everything in Christ Jesus, which is the immeasurable effect of the cross. And that is, in verse 11, his unstoppable determination and resolution. And this is really the heart of Pauline theology, I think, and it's not really touched upon even by those who are discovering or rediscovering the genitive, subjective genitive of Pistis Christu. And I was sort of given an assignment from my last human mentor to develop the subject of the love of God, which is also found in a genitive subjective, but I think it's more like a plenary genitive and that's something you can study in D.B. Wallace, Daniel B. Wallace, the plenary P-L-E-N-A-R-Y the plenary genitive means that both objective and subjective are in view so when you talk about the love of God in 1 John 2 5 for example, whoever keeps his word retains the logos, the message in that person the love of God comes to perfection or full development and the love of God there I believe is in a plenary genitive it's both the objective love of God and the subjective God is the lover and God is the object of the love in other words the gift of God's love or God's gift of his own love poured out in our own hearts in Romans 5 5 is the gift of God's love for humankind it is the gift of God's love for all humankind it's the gift of God's love for his son It's the gift of the son's love for his father. It's the gift of the spirit himself. But it's also the gift of our love for God. Our love for God is a gift. And so love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, which makes you Israel, is fulfilled in the gift of the Holy Spirit of the love of God. So I think there's something in that that's even more significant in one regard than the subjective genitive of Pistis Christu or the faithfulness of Christ. And so I asked this question one time, and I didn't get it entirely out of my mouth. I mentioned it a few times, and I'm not doing it to cast any shadow upon previous teachers, but I asked a question about the immeasurable impact of the cross. In Colossians 1.20, I was genuinely curious and said, does this seem to say that there's even going to be an impact, and I was going to say, on the angelic world? And I was stopped immediately, and you know, the, I still remember it with fond humor. Rick, be careful about becoming bizarre. And I think Chafer had this idea that if you, if you followed this line, you could get bizarre. And there is the danger of getting bizarre. If you, try to, if you try to explore the immeasurable 
effects, the immeasurable impact of the cross of Christ, you're, you're in dangerous territory because the human imagination has to be submitted to divine revelation. And that's where a lot of people get off kilter, and that's where a lot of people get off base, and that's where a lot of us tend to wander. And we cannot give way to our human imagination as it's untethered from divine revelation, which is why my discipline and the discipline that I'm calling you all to, to follow me in this discipline, is to see what the scriptures are saying and to look at it unapologetically and to look at it without trying to make a case. And if there's a verse that looks like it's going across the grain of our case, we submit to it. That'll keep us in line, keep us walking straight. So it's, it's lamentable that Chafer didn't work out the implications of this statement in the direction of God's great intention to summarize everything in Christ. I've been thinking this week, if you had to make everything out of something really good, you can't do any better than making everything out of Jesus. And he's going to fill up all things with himself. So the indescribable happiness of being comprised of Christ is the impact of the cross. That the, the word is immeasurable is a good descriptive term because by it, which is the peace that God made by the blood of Christ's cross, another way of saying by the faithful execution of the Father's will to the extent of death by crucifixion, God has made peace and by it reconciles everything to himself. That's how Colossians 1.20 gels beautifully with Ephesians 1.10. But Chafer didn't do that. He went another way. And I think, sadly, I think he would have done very well to go and to explore those immeasurable things. I don't think we should be afraid to explore the immeasurable because the immeasurable is God. And we seek to know him. So he did make that statement, though. And the whole world is under the aegis of the cross. The whole world and all of humanity is under the aegis of the cross of Christ. Nothing can be truer than that truth. That's true. That means that not a person is born. And I mean born the first time. And this is where we get into the answer to the question. No one is born who is not born under the aegis of the cross in their first birth. Not a person is born who is not under the protection of Christ's atoning work, which he made for the sins of the whole world. Now that doesn't mean that a person is born in Christ by first birth, we aren't automatically in Christ. I believe very strongly that there's a, a moment of transfer from being under sin and under condemnation and in the Adamic ontology to being placed into Christ, incorporated into Christ. So I'm not saying by that that a person is born the first time in Christ. One must be born again to be in Christ. 
there is a moment of transfer. We can call it the apocalyptic moment that God reserves for every human being. So there has to be a transfer. But it does mean that a person is born under the protective aegis of the cross and under the aegis of the faithfulness of Christ. There will be a time when every person born will come to believe in Jesus. As Karl Barth said in his theological system, and nobody's perfect, and I'm sure not, but Barth said the godless man whose choice to be godless is rejected by God is eternally determined to believe in Jesus Christ. Now, I think that there's some merit to this, that everyone will eventually believe in Jesus Christ because every knee will bow. And this is important. It says every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge. And that means to acknowledge with praise, according to Paul's interpretation of that in Romans 14.11. Compare 14.11 of Romans with Philippians 2, 9 through 11, that most famous phrase, and you'll find that to be true, and that's also anchored in Isaiah 45, 23, which says that every tongue, God says, I swear by myself as I live, as sure as I am the living God, every knee will genuflect to me, and every tongue acknowledge and swear allegiance to me that's fidelity and so there will be a time when every person born will come to believe in Jesus again I love what Barth said the godless man whose choice to be godless is refused by God is determined by God to believe in Jesus Christ when a person is born again by the action of God and Christ in the spirit in an apocalyptic moment, that person is gifted with faith or even with faithfulness. Faith is explicitly stated to be the fruit, one of the fruit of the spirit, one of the fruits, we could say, of the spirit. The fruit is singular, but it encompasses nine expressions of love. One of those is pistos or faith or faithfulness or fidelity. It is a fruit of the spirit. Just as much as love, peace, and gentleness, and meekness, and all the others are. Faith is explicitly stated then in Galatians 5, 22 and 23 to be the fruit of the Spirit. Again, as Moltmann said, and I've read all these theologians at one time or another, and the things that stick out after your distance from them for a couple of years are interesting. Because I think those are the things that the Spirit brings to the surface and brings to mind, as Moltmann said, and again, I'm paraphrasing, it is not that we are saved by faith, but that being saved, we have faith. Our faith in Christ, then, as we've learned last night, is an indicator or an acknowledgement that we are saved by and from the source of Christ's own fidelity, his faithfulness. This is borne out throughout Romans. And the, the work I'm doing in Romans with you here in Better Call Paul is not an exegesis of the book of Romans. It's a preparation for a future study of Romans. And so I'm not going to get into every verse of it yet. 
Same with Galatians. We'll be laying the groundwork for a future exposition of Galatians, if not by me, by someone in this place. Again, in Galatians and in Romans, Paul is not setting up an antinomy or an opposition between justification by works versus justification by faith. That's not what he's saying. And that's where the problem has come in, where people have interpreted Paul's gospel as setting up a, an antithesis between justification by works, which is God responding to works, Versus justification by faith, which is God responding to faith in man, a human act of faith. Paul isn't saying anymore that we are justified by a human act of faith, which God must respond to in his justice. Then he's saying that we are justified in God, as God's response to our works according to the law or to moral works or to merit. He's not saying that any more than he's saying the other. What Paul is saying above all is that our salvation rests on the fidelity of Jesus Christ and we are saved by sheer and pure and total unrestricted grace rooted in the fidelity of one righteous one whose name is Jesus Christ who died for the unrighteous. That's everybody else as Craig would say it. Kind of meandering along, but I think there's some substance and some teeth in what I'm saying here tonight. Both in Galatians and Romans, Paul is not setting up what I call a dialectic of contradictories between justification by works and justification by faith, but it's between justification by works of the law and justification by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. What's really at odds here is a justification and a divine response to any human action, including faith, versus justification as God's response to Jesus Christ's fidelity, the climax of which is his obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion, which followed up with burial and then resurrection, elevation, enthronement. That's all part of the event by which we're saved. We're saved by the Christ event, not by something that we do. There's no human action involved here. Being dead in trespasses and sins, we were made alive together with Christ. So there is a point of transfer. So every one of us has the loving privilege from God to spend some time in the Adamic ontology. We all get to have an interval of time in the Adamic ontology. And when we are transferred into Christ, we have not only the privilege of seeing the kingdom of God with new eyes, of seeing the kingdom of God, but of retrospectively appreciating the plight we were in before salvation, which was extremely desperate. We don't appreciate that until we're in Christ looking back. You can't even see that horizon until you see it retrospectively. We were talking today about plans. People are crying because, well, the president has a plan to defeat ISIS. And they say, well, what is it? Well, the thing is, if he tells you what it is, then they know too. Idiot. Galatians 3, 1, idiot. And so I I was, Pam and I were talking about it, and I said, I do want to know the plan. Retrospectively, I want to know what it is after it's done. 
And that's kind of like what we have in Romans and Galatians. We have a retrospective. Once you're in Christ, you have a horizon retrospectively to see and to appreciate the desperate plight you were in, in Adam. It was desperate. But you can't appreciate it until you're in Christ. So that's kind of an odd thing, but it's glorious, really. So in Galatians and Romans, what we have is the announcement or the, pro- the proclamation of a gospel that elicits faith. You see, what happens is the Christ event, in one sense, is manifested afresh every time the gospel is proclaimed because the gospel itself elicits faith in the hearers. Faith comes about by hearing. And by hearing is meant the rhema to Christu, the message about Christ, which is the gospel. The gospel itself evokes the faith. So then, in Romans and Galatians and throughout Paul's epistles, and people talk about the disputed ones. I don't, I don't think there's any dispute about Paul writing 10 communal epistles which we're studying now. And there are three pastorals, which we'll look at later. And I think appreciate with a phenomenal new perception. And so what the gospel proclaims is a justification, which is really a liberation, a transformation and a deliverance, an unconditional salvation by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, which is his faithful death which is the climax of his fidelity. His death was the climax of his obedient fidelity. To to whom and to what was he obedient? He was obedient to the Father's great intention to save the world. For God loved the world so much that he gave his only eternally begotten Son. And God did not send the Son into this world, Divine Mission 1. To condemn the world. But so that through him the world would be saved. And John explains that believing. We have. An experience of the life of the coming age. At the present time. And we stop perishing. Which is the present experience of all people in the Adamic ontology. It's also the experience of Christians in Christ who refused to leave behind the paleo man, the Adamic ontology. That's something that 1 Corinthians 1.18 brings about. So justification, we'll use that term just because it's bandied about. Justification is a very poor translation for dikaiao, as we've been showing. But it's not to be interpreted forensically or as a mere matter of legal or judicial imputation of rightness or rectitude. Rather, dikaio should be translated as a liberation from the suprahuman powers of sin, of death, and of the flesh, which is a formidable superhuman power in one definition, and principalities and powers which are demonic type, angelic type, superhuman types. And it also indicates a transformation that goes along with that liberation. 
Justification then is the gift of sharing the life of Jesus which came from the dead. The riven, R-I-V-E-N, it's an old word but it means torn. And Christ was riven on the cross and risen. It is sharing the life of the riven and the risen son of God which includes his fidelity. To use the terminology of Douglas Campbell in the quest for Paul's gospel which I found after I read that 1,000-page doorstopper. I found the 250-page, The Quest for the Gospel, T.N.T. Clark in 2005. He had this, P.P.M.E. And he contrasted this with the S.H., or the Salvation Historical Model. N.T. Wright and others follow that model. And with others, that's part of this so-called new perspective, and with others who the justification by faith theory that God justifies or sets people right or gives them righteousness as a response to their personal faith rather than rooted in the fidelity of Christ. PPME is his words, pneumatologically participatory martyrological eschatology. And believe it or not, that basically means that God invades the life of the individual in the transfer, the moment of transfer, so that there is a spirit-driven regeneration, a spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who transfers us. The pneumatological, therefore, refers to the Holy Spirit, pneumatological. Participatory means that we're incorporated into a participation with Christ's history, which includes his descent and ascent, as we've seen, and so it's martyrological in the sense that we died with Christ and that our participation in his fidelity may demand, it always gifts us with the gift of suffering of one kind or another, but it may demand a martyr's death on the part of some people, like Paul, like Peter, like most of the twelve Apostles, and like many missionaries who pioneer the immeasurable words of Jesus Christ to the chagrin of the traditionalists. So, pneumatologically participatory, martyrological eschatology. Eschatology to me means that eschatological Israel is being formed up right now, and the God of Israel is Jesus Christ, and the Israel of God are the people attached to him through the Holy Spirit's baptism. But there's a lot more he has in this. I, if you don't want to read The Doorstopper, and you do want to read a book, then you can read the slightly less maddening ver- the version called The Quest for Paul's Gospel by Douglas Campbell, Douglas A. Campbell. It's by the Spirit that a person is incorporated into Christ. We know that from 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. And we are incorporated into Christ, we're incorporated into his death, and we know that from Romans 6, 3, and 4. And then into his risen life, we know from that same passage. This is an eschatology that is Christological. And that means that the dawning of the new age has already occurred. The dawn of the new age has already occurred. And we are living in the overlap of the evil age with the coming New age, and therefore there is a struggle between the flesh, which is the old age, and the spirit, 
which is the new age, the paleo, paleosanthropos, the old man, and the neosanthropos, the new man, or the kainosanthropos, the new man, as Paul puts it in Ephesians. He doesn't use the word flesh in that sense in Ephesians or Colossians or in Thessalonians, for that matter. He only uses it in Romans and Galatians pretty much. Because there, the teachers brought forth that concept of the flesh. Normally, Paul would have called it the old man. We'll come up to that if I have the time. And by that, I mean the life. It is the spirit that a person, by the spirit, therefore the P in PPME, the first P, incorporated into Christ in his death and into his risen life. And this is an eschatology that is Christ-centered. Be incorporated into Christ by the Spirit, we have the faithfulness of Christ. We live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. Now, as far as I can see, and this is, again, toward the answer to the question, Mary Helen's question from Mississippi. I think she'll, like, she'll get a kick out of this. Because that's and I'm being anonymous tonight. But um, as far as I can see, there is, in the case of every human person, a specific moment of transfer into Christ, a specific moment. Every human being then experiences an interval in the Adamic ontology before this transfer, from birth to the moment of transfer. The transfer is effected by God in the spirit, and it's his initiative and his act entirely. The psalmist wasn't kidding, and he was very deadly serious when he said salvation is of the Lord that says it all Psalm 3 8 Jonah repeated that from the belly of the whale shark when he was basically speaking from Sheol itself when he said salvation is of the Lord I can't get out of this thing but God can cause the whale shark to vomit him up on shore, even as God can cause the belly of the earth to give up Jesus, whom the grave could not hold. Jesus is the one that related those two together. He said, a wicked and evil generation seeks for an attesting sign, he said. But there's only one sign that will be given to this generation, and it is the sign of Jonah, the prophet. Because he was three days in the belly of the whale shark or the sea creature. And the son of man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. And that's the gospel. That's the sign. Burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. So as far as I can see, there is in the case of every human person a specific moment of transfer into Christ. Every human being then experiences an interval in the Adamic ontology before this transfer. And so after the transfer is effected in one place in Ephesians 4.24, and then another in Colossians 3.10, Paul says two things. You have put off the old man, so put off the old man. You have put off the old man. In that transfer, the old man, paleo man, paleosanthropos, was put off. So put him off. That is, experience participation in Christ. Your will is freed. The gospel isn't about your free will. It's not about freedom of will. That's where the real, the rubber meets the road. That's where the iron strikes the heart of people. 
You, it's not a matter of the freedom of will. The gospel brings with it the freeing of the will. If you study Romans 7, you see what free will gets you. I try to do good and evil's present with me. I always do the evil that I try to avoid. I never do the good that I intend to do. That's free will. You want free will? Then enter into that misery. We can say to God, put me out of my misery. I've said that a couple times to God, put me out of my misery. And Elijah said it this way, kill me. But the Lord says in answer to that, how about if I lift you out of your misery? How about that? If I elevate you out of your misery. And my answer to that is, okay, I'd rather be lifted out. Then put out because if I'm lifted out of my misery, I can continue on in the fidelity of Christ toward territory unknown. I love it. The problem is, it's kind of like salmon swimming upstream. Fewer and fewer want to swim upstream with you, but that's all right. That's okay. You'll find that to be true in your own life if. You keep on pressing on. That's not a popular thing to do nowadays. Every human being experiences an interval in the Adamic ontology. This transfer then is affected entirely by God. It is his initiative and his act entirely. In fact, he who begins this good act in you, this good work in you, will perform it all the way to its completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.6. So we did get to Philippians if we don't get back to Philippians tonight, which we probably won't. So there is no cooperation on our part in the act of deliverance. Once in Christ, one has the giftedness of a faith that is participation with Messiah's faithfulness. Just as each person is born into this world the first time in God's own time, God's due time. So each person is born again in God's due time. In the fullness of time, even Christ was born, according to Galatians 4.4. And in the fullness of time, he became the firstborn out from among the realm of the dead ones. The firstborn from the dead. In the fullness of time, each is given a second birth, a birth from above. From the spirit, at which time they are able to to see the kingdom of God. Unless you are born again or born from above, born by the spirit, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus said to the master teacher of Israel named Nicodemus. And secondly, once you're in Christ. By an act of God, you're able to retrospectively understand your former condition and plight. That reverses the Romans road where you have to recognize that you're a sinner and admit that you're a sinner and be sorry for your sin and all this nonsense that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ at all. This kind of reverses the Romans road and turns it into the Roman superhighway. So, 
In the fullness of time, each is given a second birth. Now follow me on this, because this is where we get into controversial territory, and I won't be dogmatic about it. I won't be dogmatic about it, even though I have my convictions. I should leave a lot of room for you to come to your own, and I do. I don't ask you to believe what I believe. I'm not asking you to believe what I preach. I'm not saying you don't have to swear an oath of loyalty and sign a form that many churches sign that you adhere to the doctrine points, all 17 of them and all that nonsense. You don't have to. We can have fellowship in Christ without agreeing on a lot of these things. But now... We have been told by a tradition that alleges to be Christian. In fact, it insists that it's a Christian tradition that there is no salvation for any person who lives their whole life without believing and who then dies. This contradicts, however, some things that I'm finding in the Bible. This contradicts that traditional statement seems to contradict some things, for example, that Jesus is Lord over both the living and the dead in Romans 14, 9. And that he who died has been made alive from the dead and owns the keys of death and of Hades. The tradition that says there's no salvation after death is kind of like the tradition that says There's no salvation for anybody in the tribulation that's coming. There's no tribute. There's no salvation in the tribulation. And even on the face of it, that's kind of like contradictory with revelation. Who are these people? Oh, there are hundreds of millions of people who came out of the great tribulation and they're waving palm fronds and praising God for the lamb's salvation. So you see, you find things in the Bible and you say, well, That doesn't sound like what that guy barked about on WPIT in a few hours before our show. And neither does it make any sense. I didn't even need to read the Bible for this one. If you backslide for six months, you owe six months back tithes. That was the show before us. I had to listen to some of it because I had to... Before I came on the air, I had to listen to the last few minutes of the shows that were before me sometimes. And I did the show from my own house, so it was interesting because the one time I went down to meet Mike Kamachek, who was a wonderful man. He was from the Ukraine. Believe me, he is from the Ukraine because I said Ukraine. And he said, it's not Ukraine, it's the Ukraine. Because if it's Ukraine, that means it's just a section of Russia. We're not a section. I said, okay, I get it, I get it. And then he also, the first time I met him, he says, you know what your problem is? And I said, no, nobody told me. He said, you talk too much. And I said, well, let me ask you this. Do you expect me to give a yes or no answer when somebody says, explain the doctrine of eternal security? I can't be brief. And so... I've been talking too much ever since. Now, if I ever did retire, and I don't think I will, but if, I ever, if God ever said it's time for you to lay down your sword and shield now and go someplace and hide out and, and write and speak occasionally, I will probably, once I stop speaking, I may never open my mouth again because I love to be silent. I love to wait on the Lord, but he's given me a job in which I have to talk, and I talk too much. 
But I went down to the studio one time because I said, well, I'm doing the show from a telephone at my house. So I'll get down to the studio, WPIT. What do they do? Put me in a side room with a phone. So that was the last. I only did that a couple of times. But in other words, I started to hear a lot of things. There were 48 shows. I think we were fifth out of 48 at one time and then went to 13th and Ever since, we'd probably be 47th now, but I quit after 10 years of that, not because I was tired of it, because I needed to study. And that part of my day can't be taken out of the, out of the equation. So I'm being autobiographical. I'm, uh, autobiographical. I'm sorry, Paul was in Galatians. But the doctrine of the impossibility of posthumous salvation is a traditional stronghold. However, from the scriptures, we've seen that every eye will see the Son of Man and that every knee of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth. If you're a human being and you're under the earth, you're dead. You're a dead man. You're a dead woman. And your knees will bow under the earth on the earth and in heaven will genuflect and every tongue that is under the earth on the earth and in heaven will acknowledge that means by the Holy Spirit because what the acknowledgement is is this the Lord Yahweh is Yeshua now nobody can call Jesus Lord except by the Holy Spirit So when every tongue acknowledges Jesus to be Lord, they are acknowledging something that can only be the result of the Holy Spirit in them generating that acknowledgement. That's 1 Corinthians 12.3 compared to Romans 14.11 compared to 1st or rather Philippians 2.9 through 11 anchored in Isaiah 45, 22 and 23. Look unto me, or because to look to me, all you ends of the earth and be saved. For as I live, says Yahweh, every knee, you know the rest of it. So this makes necessary that the dead, if you want to put it in crude terms, have a chance to believe in Jesus having been justified By his faithfulness. Now if Chafer's right. That the whole world is under the aegis of the cross. And that therefore every person. At birth. Is under that aegis. This isn't a complete answer to the question. But I'm trying. Then why does physical death. Remove a person from the aegis of the cross. That's my question. Just a question. If everyone is born under the aegis of the cross, why does death remove someone from the aegis of the cross? Oh, you died. Too bad. Off to hell with you for eternal punishment. I'm just offering a little bit of an alternative view here. Obviously, in my view, it does not. Oh, I won't be dogmatic. Let's say it doesn't necessarily remove a person from the aegis of the cross. In fact, we might even have to conclude with Moltmann that the so-called unbelieving dead are under the protective care of Christ and are with him 
You say, but that's Maltman, but what do you think? I don't know. What does the scripture say? I don't know what that, gonna, what that looks like either. So you get questions like, what's it like after you die? I don't know. I haven't died physically yet. I can't tell you. Got very few hints about it. Got much more hints about what the post-resurrection, bodily resurrection will be like than the post-physical death pre-resurrection. I don't know what it looks like. I can't pretend to know, at least not yet. But I do know that Jesus went and preached to the souls of the dead and that they heard him. He wasn't just preaching to unconscious people like I do sometimes. But either they were conscious, or if not conscious, they certainly got awakened by the preaching of the Son of God because he said, the time is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Who will live? The dead. Now, there's two kinds of dead. There's dead in trespasses and sins. That's us from birth to the transfer. Then there are people that are physically dead. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. It doesn't say those who hear and believe will live. It says those who hear will live because the hearing brings the fidelity. The hearing brings the faith. The message evokes the faithfulness, the faith, the gift of faith. Just in case you don't know this, I have some scriptural anchorage here in First Peter 4. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to the dead. So that, although they might be judged by men in the fleshly realm, they might live by God in the spirit. Say a man is judged by men in the fleshly realm. He's judged to be executed because of murder. He's judged and he's executed by men. What is God going to do about that? Kill him again in the second death or make him alive by the spirit? Does God forgive perpetrators of evil or does he not? Does a perpetrator of evil slip out from under the aegis of the cross and slip away from it forever? If that's true, then all of us are done because every one of you and myself have perpetrated some kind of evil in which we have either hurt or offended or insulted or shamed or spoke evil of somebody in this world. It seems that the time is now and the time is still coming that the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. In Galatians, it is at the hearing of the gospel which elicits the faith when we receive the Spirit. Did you receive the Spirit, Paul said, as a reward for works according to the law? Or did you receive the Spirit at the Akoe, the hearing where faith was elicited at the hearing of the gospel where faith was elicited. The answer is you receive the spirit at the hearing, which also then elicited faith. He's called the spirit of faith because he elicits the faith, evokes it, brings it about. So we do have a couple minutes to go back and circle back and get to Philippians 1 again. Just look at this now. Only conduct your lives. Now, if I do, again, I never know if this is, I can't be dogmatic about this, but the last time I went to Florida, I came back, and I've now done 45 
I will have done 45 messages on Better Call Paul since then. And if I go to Florida again, which I'm planning on, I will do 48 messages on Better Call Paul and then take a slight respite. I'm not a superhuman. I need them. And then come back and hit it again. And so these next few messages are going to be critical, and they have to do with an exhortation of all of you, and it's this. Only conduct your lives as colonial citizen soldiers of heaven in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, in order that whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one soul, fighting shoulder to shoulder for the faithfulness that the gospel elicits. The faithfulness at the heart of this gospel is the faithfulness of Messiah Jesus, which is participated in by us. Notice verse 8. And not intimidated in the slightest by your opponents, which, that means which, lack of fear on your part, is a proof of their perishing and of your deliverance. And this is given to you from God. Those who oppose the advancement of the phalanx of Christ's fidelity include superhuman principalities and powers and human beings who are activated by them. Get behind me, Satan, Jesus said to a human being activated by the God of this age. So that our opponents include especially superhuman principalities and powers and human beings who are activated by them and operative in the Adamic ontology in which they are perishing. The definition for perishing is simply the Adamic ontology. Being in the Adamic ontology or in the flesh is perishing. Those who consider the cross the word of the cross to be foolish are perishing. It's not eternal punishment in hell. It's an experience of having no compass in this world, no compass in this life and being unrestrained and a slave of the impulses of the Adamic nature. So, The opponents are later described by Paul as the enemies of the cross of Christ in Philippians 3.18, whose end is perishing. Again, the perishing means that because they are still operational, living and walking, we could say, in the Adamic ontology, paleoanthropos, that this operation and life will come to an end. That's good news, but they don't see it as good news. Your life as you know it, you say to a person in the Adamic ontology, is coming to an end. They don't like that until they get to the other life, and then they say, man, am I glad that life came to an end. Because people like perishing. And they love to consider the preaching of the cross as foolishness. And Christians who call themselves that love to mock the gospel that is an all-inclusive savior announcement. There, that You never see arrogance like you see it there. You never see people that all of a sudden become operational by principalities and powers in their passionate reaction to the possibility that the cross 
has an immeasurable impact that they never imagined. They want to keep in their own little imaginations. They want to have their own little secure little thing of Calvinistic election. He elects a few and he lets the rest go to hell forever and ever because that's the kind of God they worship. To me, it's an idol. So, election is the truth. God elects us to privilege, the privilege of being in union with Christ. And it's an unconditional election, like Calvin said, but I can't go back to the old Calvinism that says that he elects some for salvation and elects others or selects others for damnation, the double predestination thing. I'd rather agree with Bart who said that Jesus Christ fulfilled both ends of a double predestination. He took the rejection on the cross and embodied the acceptance in his resurrection for all mankind. But then Barth was afraid to say that he was universalist at the end of his career. They all, all these guys are. Everybody's afraid to say, the, say right outright, except there's a few people coming now like Perry and Talbot and others we've read and Moltman, they're, they're convinced universalists. They're Trinitarian and they're convinced universalists. You say, what are you? I say, I'm not telling you now. I've said it before and I'm going to pretend that I'm not convinced because I want to be reconvinced again with Paul. I call Paul. Paul, convince me. Perishing then means operation in the Adamic ontology. It is not a reference to eternal hell, as lexicons that are infected by that tradition always say. They'll say perishing, apoluo, always means eternal perishing in hell. And I, I began to question that, and I said, well, how do you, wait, wait, a, why does that mean that again? If the Bible says that without a vision, my people are perishing, then does that mean if we don't have a vision, we're all going to hell for eternity? Some lexicons say yes. Be careful of lexicons. They're infected, too. So, so are translations. And even if we go to the original autographs where those words were inspired originally by the Holy Spirit, we still don't know what those words mean until we see their usage sometimes sprawled out over history, sometimes sprawled out over the whole context of the entire Bible, the overwhelming testimony of Scripture. And so the superhuman powers that enslave the human race in Adam include sin and death and superhuman, as well as often, human principalities and powers. Principalities and powers of the demonic type also see a sign of their demise when they see a phalanx, a church, as an advancing phalanx of citizens, colonial citizen soldiers of heaven, whose citizenship is in heaven. They see that advance. They also see it as a sign of their demise. Their demise is interpreted by the demons themselves as being tormented by the Lord. In Matthew 8, 29, the demon said to Jesus, recognizing him, he said, have you come to torture us before our time? In other words, the demon's eschatology is Jesus is going to come back and he's going to torture us and he's going to torture all human beings that slip out from underneath the aegis of his cross. And so the demons assume that they'll be tormented by the Lord. People under the God of this age who are blinded to the glorious gospel or the gospel of the glory of Christ also assume 
that when Christ returns, it's going to be to torture the masses of humanity that haven't believed in him. God can't respond to their faith for salvation, so he has to respond to their unbelief by torturing them day and night with no end forever. I beg to differ. And I'm not genuflecting to that God. People are worshiping a goddamn God. A God who damns people. A goddamning God. Sometimes you got to say it shockingly like the prophets of old used to say it, just so people get the point. So then, listen carefully and I'll close with this. The demise of principalities and powers. Now, Chafer himself wondered at this. He read Colossians and he said, everything's going to be reconciled in the heavens on earth, principalities and powers, and then you think, well, no, that can't mean that. But why can't it? mean that why can't it mean that is my question and so their demise is coming but the demons perceive their demise as an everlasting torture by the Lord but we may argue rather that the demise of principalities and powers will rather be by means of a restorative transformation in keeping with the apocatastasis pantone of Acts 3.21 and the summing up of all things in Christ per Ephesians 1.10. And so again, Moltmann's thing comes to the fore in my brain when he says, God's punishment for evildoers is transformation by grace. The principalities and powers in their evil will come to a total demise. They will stop being that when God restores them and the end reflects the beginning when all of creation was pristine and all of creation was clean and all of creation was sparkling with the life of God. And a person who enjoys evil doesn't like the idea that they're going to be transformed by God's grace. They'll mock it. They'll hate it. They'll curse God's name. They'll use Jesus Christ's name. But I've gone through a transformation. When I hear Jesus Christ's name, which you, can, you can't avoid anymore because for, in the year 2017, for some reason, all the restraints on television have been lifted. And you, you say anything you want, do anything you want after 10 o'clock or whatever. And you, when you hear the name of Jesus Christ spoken in the most irreverent way, to me that's still, you know what that demonstrates to me? He is the Lord of the living and the dead. The dead speak his name in the wrong way. The living speak his name in the right way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. And I do pray, Mary Helen, I pray that this answer at least begins to go in a direction that answers your very excellent, well-taught, scholarly question, a good question. And I pray, Father, that this will go toward an answer to that question and that will be answered completely in subsequent messages. I pray, Father, that you'll grant us incentive through what we've heard tonight and that you'll even use this message to lift some out of their misery instead of putting them out of their misery. I ask this in Jesus' name.